listeners of Dying to Be Found. If you're fans of Deb and Beth like we are, we hope that you'll give us a try. We like them a lot and we hope that you'll like us too. I'm Beth. And I'm Bailey. And we, we are, are True Crime b and We do a podcast every week. We release on Fridays. And every week we'll bring to you two different true crime stories. First we'll bring you a disturbing story. And then one that will hopefully uplift your spirits a little bit. We'd love to have you listen to our podcast. <laughs> yeah, so join us every week on Friday. Find us anywhere you find your podcasts on Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, I don't know anywhere else. (laughs) (laughs) And also you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at True Crime BNB. Did we even mention that we're mom and daughter? No. (laughs) (laughs) I hope you join our crime family. Bye. Bye. Hi, everyone. This is Deb from Dying to be Found. Before we get started today, I just wanted to mention that episodes contain disturbing discussions on harmful acts and crimes against animals and or humankind. Recordings are not intended for young or sensitive audiences due to the content nature of this podcast. Listener discretion is strongly advised. This is Deb. And this is Beth. And we want to thank you for joining us today on our next episode of Dying to be Found. How are you doing today, Beth? I'm doing awesome. How about you? I'm doing really good. You know, I think by now you probably know that I like to go shopping and I wanted to tell you about a purchase that I came across while I was out. So I was out shopping with a friend and we found a really cool outdoor mat that you put at your front door. And it's one of those that you wipe your feet on before you come in the house. Mm -hmm. Well, it said on there, hide packages from husband. That's hilarious. I know. I thought it was kind of cool because if anybody knows me, I love Amazon, but I was kind of hemming and hawing a little bit on buying the mat. Anybody coming up to my door, it's pretty much an open invitation that I shop Amazon and people are going to leave packages on my front porch. So I was trying to decide, do I buy this or not? I think that's a cute idea. It's hilarious. But what if he takes it to be true and he hides it somewhere and you can't find it? That's what I was thinking. But the other thing is, is with my girlfriend, what she mentioned to me was, well, it's telling people that you have a husband. So extra security, right? Oh, very true. Needless to say, I didn't get it, but I thought it was really cute and I might go back another day. Who knows? Well, you'll you'll find it on your shopping trips, I'm sure. I'm sure. Hey, anything else you want to add? Do you have anything going on? Well, I found a new knitting store out in the country and OM. MG. It was so awesome. And I have never had such personal service before. I found some wool that I wanted to use on a project, but I didn't have a project to use. I showed her a pattern that I wanted to make. That's the way it usually goes. You, You take a pattern in and you find your yarn. So I found this yarn on sale and she said, 
I can find exactly what you want that will fit that pattern. So she printed out a new pattern for me and I was able to use that yarn. That is great. It's really nice when you get people who are extra helpful like that. I've run into people who really don't know their business. And I think it's so important, especially when you're the customer, for sure. That's great. She was so intelligent on everything. Okay, well, are we ready to get started? We certainly are. Okay, guess what, you all? Beth is going to take the lead on this. She found a really cool topic to talk about that I had not heard of. Of course, I did a little bit of research after she told me what she was going to be saying today. So Beth, I've got a couple of surprises for you too. That's exciting. Yeah, let's go. All right. So this is a story about a man named Arthur Johnson. And it's a story that has intrigued me for years. Originally, I read The Mad Trapper of Rat River in my 20s and again in my 40s. And here I am reading an updated version of his book entitled The Mad Trapper of Rat River, A True Story of Canada's Biggest Manhunt. Author Dick North stated in his foreword that this account consists of two stories. One about the Desperado, and the other, a 30-year search for the Mad Trapper's identity. Today, I'm going to cover the Desperado. To keep things easy to follow, I have kept all temperatures reported in degrees Fahrenheit, and the distance will be in miles. I'm questioning the 30-year search for his identity. How does that come into play? Was he a mad trapper for 30 years? After he died, they never were able to come upon who this man was. Okay. And then just over time, they were able to identify him. Well, the weird thing is uh, this three quarters of the book went into discussing who this man really is, which I still have to read. When I went on Wikipedia, it still says his identity is unknown. Oh, okay. So he was just an unknown, unidentified person. Exactly. For 30 years after the incident. Mm-hmm. Okay. Got you. Keep going. Thanks, Dad, for introducing me to this wild ride. I hope you enjoy this intriguing tale as much as I did. And Deb, I hope you like this tale as well. It sounds pretty intriguing. I can't wait. I'm going to start by giving a visual of the Northwest Territory so our listeners understand where these events took place. Canada's Northwest Territories are located north of British Columbia, Alberta, and Saskatchewan. Ooh, it, can I stop you for a moment? Yeah. I love the word Saskatchewan. I have <laughs> always loved that word. I want to go visit Saskatchewan just because of the cool word Saskatchewan. What intrigues you by it? I don't know. I don't really know why I like the name. I think it's just cool to say, just like that name that we came across in a couple episodes ago where it was Detective Moose. Do you remember him? Yes. Same thing. I don't know. Words catch me. And Saskatchewan is just one of those words that grabs my attention. And again, I just want to go visit because of the word. Well, <laughs> if you do, let me know. Oh, no, you're going with me. <laughs> <laughs> so if you were to look at a map of North America, they would be considered a Midwest region, but much further north. And that's for Canadians. I want to give a visual for the American listeners that this is due north of Washington state. 
On July 9th, a stranger entered the North Northern Traders Limited in Fort McPherson to gather supplies. Fort McPherson, by the way, is located in the far northwest region of the Northwest Territories and is somewhat of an underdeveloped area. So naturally, this area was well known for trading posts. The stranger purchased a 16-gauge single-barrel shotgun and 25 shells. He was a great customer because he appeared to have a lot of cash with him. If he had a lot of cash with him, that's great. But why did he only buy 25 shells? He wasn't anticipating anything to happen. He just needed 25 shells to do his shooting of his food. Going hunting? Yes. Got you. Okay, so it was a day trip. It was a day trip. Gotcha. On July 21st, 1931, Constable Millen with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, or the RCMP, met up with this stranger who turned out to be Arthur Johnson and asked where he was heading. Johnson did not offer up much information, but did say he was in the area to do some trapping. The constable worried that Johnson was not experienced enough to be hauling such a large pack on his back and working as a trapper and hunter. Trapping and hunting was not for the weak. So Constable Millen wanted to make sure that Johnson could work independently because rescuing men took its toll on the RCMP. Johnson assured Constable Millen and went on his way, mentioning that he was just checking things out to decide if he was even going to stay in the area. Constable Millen also suggested that Johnson hire a guide, but he refused because he said he preferred to be on his own. As he went on his way, Johnson faced a pretty tough struggle as he worked his way toward an area where he planned to build an 8-foot by 10-foot cabin just south of the Winter Trail. He planned to live as a hermit because, as I mentioned, he preferred to be alone. This journey was a very hard trek indeed, and as the trail ran through a series of lakes that cut off a bend of the Rat River... This location happened to be along the trap lines of three men, William Vetrequa, Jacob Drymeat, and William Neriso. On December 25th, Christmas Day in 1931, William Neriso went to the authorities and spoke with Constable Millen to tell them that someone was pulling their traps from the Rat River and was springing traps. On July 26th, Millen followed up on these complaints and eventually ordered Constable Alfred Buns King and Special Constable Joe Bernard to go to Johnson's cabin to serve him a warrant regarding these traps being sprung. Can I ask another question? I don't yeah. I don't really know much about trapping, but what is what does it mean to spring a trap? Men would have traps all along the river and they would have big sticks if they want to spring it. So that if an animal gets caught in a trap, it touches a particular spot on the trap and it snaps onto their leg. Oh, so are these guys that were complaining to the law authorities, are they trapping in the river or are they trapping land animals? You can do both. This, okay. in this particular case, I'm assuming it's in the river because it's the mad trapper of Rat River. So we're discussing the area. To spring, you would use a long stick and just place the stick exactly where the animal would touch. And okay. that's called springing a trap. Okay, like a bear trap. Yes. Okay, gotcha. Going to confront Arthur Johnson about springing the traps was no easy feat. Constable King and Special Constable Bernard had to lead two dog teams to Fort McPherson, along with two other constables. 
These law enforcement team set out on a 60 mile trek up north under frigid temperatures of 40 below zero. It took two days to reach Johnson's cabin through temperatures so cold that a loss of even a mitten would cause a frostbite immediately. If not tended to with a fire, there would be permanent damage or even a loss of life. After two days of travel and heavy snow, the RCMP team reached Johnson's cabin with a warrant in hand. King called out and shouted, Are you there, Mr. Johnson? And there was no answer. Beth? What? Because I did my own little research on parts of this story, which is pretty cool. First of all, you're a great storyteller. I love the inflection in your voice. But secondly, I'm going to go along the lines of this thought that I had earlier you had mentioned that when Mr. Johnson first met up with Constable Millen, mm -hmm. that he had mentioned that he was, he preferred to be on his own, right? Yes. Do you know what snow blindness is? No. So when you are in a snowy area, like up in the Northwest Territories of Canada, you get snow. So you know what it's like when everything, fresh snowfall, everything's beautiful and white and you're surrounded by nothing but snow. Like yeah. you can't see anything. Even the trees are white, right? Right. Apparently, when people are exposed to that visually, you get something called snow blindness. And it's basically, it messes with your mind a little bit. And I'm not going to say that it, it makes you think differently or act differently. But my point is that there's something also that happens when you are out all by yourself. So snow blindness disorients people because oh. you can't really see anything around you besides just white. Interesting. And yeah. So with the the fact that Johnson describes himself as a loner, when people are by themselves for too long, then it kind of goes along the same lines. They become out of sorts because, you know, we're social creatures, right? If he's by himself, then being up in that snowy area all by yourself also kind of plays tricks with the mind. I don't know the technical term or the psychological term of that, but I found that to be interesting. The fact that when somebody is isolated all by themselves, then it kind of makes them go into a different mindset. Does that make sense? Yes. So I think that's kind of where Mr. Johnson's mindset is maybe heading because he is a loner and he's just not interacting with anybody. So uh, being up there where all the snow is at and probably the temperatures too, they've got to have some kind of play into his behaviors. That sounds very neat. I did not realize any of that. Yeah. So anyway, I just wanted to kind of put that out there, but you can keep going because, you know, I'm random and I'll keep interrupting you. <laughs> Good. I'm sure our listeners do enjoy the tidbits of information from you. So King saw some smoke coming out of the chimney, so he knew Johnson was in the cabin. Anticipating trouble, King ran to the side of the door and reached out to his side to knock on the door. Without a word from Johnson, a shot rang out and a bullet went through the door hitting King. Oh no. Your oh no should be more exciting. Why should my oh no be more exciting? King got hit. Oh, okay. Yeah, you're right. I forgot. <laughs> Because of King's injuries, the police gave up their pursuit of Johnson and chose to take care of King immediately. King was loaded into the sled and the constable started back on their 80-mile trek to get King back to the hospital. The weather was raw with temperatures, minus 40 degrees below zero. 
The wind blew so strong that the dogs, who were already so tired from the trek to Johnson's cabin, had to mush through untracked snow because the trail disappeared under the snow flurries that occurred after the first arrival at Johnson's cabin. The combination of wind, snow, and cold temperatures were excruciating, and 20 hours later they arrived at Aklavik, which is even further north. Once there, Constable King was rushed to the hospital. It was discovered that the bullet had passed the left side of the chest and had come out to the right side. The slug had missed vital organs. Being as healthy as he was, King was up and back to himself in just three weeks. Wow. Isn't it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I don't know how old he was, but good for him as far Mm -hmm. as that. That's I'm just thinking he must have been in really good physical shape for him just to be up and running within three weeks. That's incredible. It is. Between three RCMP posts, Inspector Ems was assigned to the lead case. Ems chose a team of 11 men and get this, 42 dogs to go after Johnson. How many dogs are on a a sled team? They usually have about five. They have four dogs and a lead. So there's two dogs in front of each other. And then the lead dog is in between the whole four section. Okay. So is it like two by two? Yes. Two by two. And then the one. Got you. Okay. That poor lead dog. That is a lot of weight to carry. It is, especially on this 250 mile trek that we're going to find out that they're on. Holy cow. After two days of trekking, the team stopped briefly to pick up Constable Edgar Millen and an Indian guide, Charlie Rat, where they continued their way back to Johnson's cabin. Do you think they named the Rat River after him or his family line? I think so. When I read it, my, that was my first impression. Two days later, they thought that Johnson's cabin was only a mile or two away, but they were in fact wrong. It was seven or eight miles back in the opposite direction. And that would be a lot of work because seven or eight miles is a very long distance, especially when there's no trail and they're having to lead the way through fresh snow. So they basically got lost. Yes. I wonder if it's because of that snow blindness. Could be. Huh. So the cabin was only a mile or two away, but they ended up traveling seven or eight miles. Wow. Wow. They had to have been caught up in that snow blindness. Yeah. And then you can imagine how tired they would be. And the dogs, the poor dogs. I know. It was January 9th, 1932, when the team finally arrived at their destination and surrounded Johnson's cabin. While the men stood around fires to get warm, They asked each other why Johnson never left the cabin when the first team rushed back to Aklavik to seek medical help for Constable King. They did not have a lot of time to contemplate this any further because of an immense amount of gunfire began as Johnson proceeded to take aim at the constables. For 15 hours, both Johnson and the authorities began shooting. As Johnson refused to back down and standoff ensued, at one point, One of the constables made his way through the doorway to the cabin by hitting the butt of his rifle against the door. Once inside, he yelled to his partners that Johnson was in the pit and was firing two handguns at one time. All right. So Johnson's inside shooting up like a little Western cowboy here. And he's got two two handguns 
where's he shooting from? Is he shooting through windows? Is he, I don't, I can't really picture how he is participating in this gunfight. How is he keeping himself undercover so that he's not getting hit? Well, we'll find out a little bit about how he managed not to get hit, but I have no idea how the bullets were coming out. I do know that I've been in some cabins in museums and there were little pit holes, just enough for your rifle to go through to shoot. And I would imagine that this is what happened in this case. Okay. Once inside, he yelled out to his partners that Johnson was in a pit. So that's how he was able not to get hit. He must have had protection during those days. That's why he didn't leave the cabin. He would have dug that pit around the whole cabin. So he had a place to hide in. So he was like in a foxhole of sorts. Yes, exactly. Okay. As it turned out, Johnson had made sure that when he built his cabin, he left several small openings at the corners of the building so that he could shoot his rifle out if he needed to. Well, there you go. I'm answering my own questions here. And thank goodness I was right. (laughs) Hey, so when the constable went into the cabin, did he confront Johnson head on after he yelled out to his partners that Johnson was in a pit? Oh, no, you all. Guess what happened? I asked Beth the question and there she goes off again. All right, it's story time. While we're waiting, let me tell you about when we were kids growing up in Canada. And since we're talking about snow here, I loved my snowy winters because we used to go out to the cow pasture and there was a cow trail that the cows would come up and come into the field every day. Well, we used to go tobogganing down the cow trail every winter and it was so much fun because we'd take the sled and we had to really be careful about maneuvering a certain corner of that trail because if we didn't maneuver it and shift just right, we would slam into some trees and we were really careful about that. I don't think I really slammed into any trees, but we just had a good time. I'm back. (laughs) Hey, Beth, I have a question for you. Okay. Did you go tobogganing with me down the cow trail when we were growing up? Yes. Yes, yes. Loved it. <laughs> I thought you did. I couldn't remember because I, I always remember going outside to play with the neighborhood kids, but I'm pretty sure you always joined us for the tobogganing. So I sure did. Uh, yeah. Did you ever hit the trees? I think I did. I don't ever remember hitting the trees. If anything, I came to a sliding stop just as I was coming up on it, but I'm pretty sure that you and I probably were on the same toboggan from time to time as well. And boy, did we have to work as a team. We did just like we are now. Yeah. And just like on the dog teams too. But yeah, it was, I, I can see how everybody has to work together, but boy, was that ever fun. Okay. Now that we're back, I had a question for you before you dropped. And I wanted to know when the constable went into the cabin, did he have any kind of confrontation with Johnson head on? No, no, that's it. No, he didn't about face and he got out of Dodge. Gotcha. Before they left Fort McPherson, authorities packed a kit, if you will, containing firearms and other equipment they needed during a standoff. One of the things they included in this kit was dynamite. Due to the frigid temperatures, the dynamite had to be thawed very carefully underneath each man's parka jacket. Once thawed out, the dynamite was thrown against the cabin in the hopes that logs or the roof would be dislodged, but this proved to be ineffective and Johnson continued to remain in his cabin. Did they not have enough dynamite? 
I don't know, but this man has nine lives. <laughs> yeah, he does. The next morning, dynamite was thrown onto the cabin's roof and the constable successfully achieved what they had hoped would happen. The roof caved in. However, their joy was short-lived when Johnson shot a flashlight out of the hand of one of the constables as he quietly and patiently lay in wait. This failed attack had Ames and Garland retreat back to safety of the riverbank. During the standoff, Constable Millen was caught in the crossfire and was shot through the heart where he died on the scene. By this time, the majority of the RCMP team wanted to burn Johnson out of his cabin, but Eames insisted they bring him out alive. I wonder why at this point, if he's being so standoffish, why would he want him to come out alive, do you think? I have no idea. That is kind of crazy, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, human being, I get that for sure. Maybe that's why. However, Johnson was proving himself to outwit the law, who were now beginning to prepare their first ever tracking by plane. At this point, Inspector Eames thought a plane was necessary because it was quite difficult to feed teams of dog sleds. For example, one team requires a two-pound fish a day. Five teams of dogs for five days would require 500 pounds of food for 10 days. That's quite a lot, eh, Deb? Holy cow, yeah. I have two very big dogs, and we go through quite a bit of dog food in a month, but that's a lot of planning for the dog teams. <laughs> it is. At this point, while the team was tending to the dogs, Johnson managed to slip away undetected and the trackers had no idea where Johnson was headed. How in the world could he slip away undetected? There's 11 RCMP officers. Do you think that maybe they never went behind the cabin because he was shooting out front? I, I can't imagine that not surrounding it in, in its entirety, but that's what it seems like. I agree. And then two, we know, or at least I know with the dogs that I have, when they detect something, they're going to bark. So why didn't any of the dogs bark? There were two full teams of dogs. This whole thing about the mad trapper is strange. It's like this isn't a true story. It's almost like a comedy of errors. It really is. It would be interesting to make a Broadway show out of this. Absolutely. I'd go see it. Me too. Maybe they'll hear our podcast. We're definitely getting noticed. <laughs> On January 21st, 1932... The Alaskan radio station reported that there was a large manhunt on the east side of the Richardson Mountains. It turns out Johnson avoided all men by crossing the Richardson Mountains and headed west. Wow, he, he climbed a mountain? He climbed that mountain in snowshoes. Have you ever worn snowshoes? I think Dad had us put some on. Remember his shoes he had? I do remember. I know I wore them. They were fun. <laughs> they certainly were. And they were from the military. <laughs> yep. Sergeant Hersey, one of the RCMP's team in the Northwest Territories, had one of the fastest dog teams and gathered up a large posse to start their pursuit after Johnson. Orders went out from Edmonton, Alberta, for patrols to leave Whitehorse in the Yukon and meet a team sent from Fort Norman, Northwest Territories, 500 miles away. Patrols and airplanes were dispatched from Dawson City and mail inside the Yukon, just west of the Northwest Territories and east of Alaska. Hey, Beth, can I give you a little trivia here? I would love it. <laughs> Have you heard of the Red Baron? Yes. What do you know about him besides pizza? Snoopy drives him. 
I forgot about that. Snoopy flies him. <laughs> He's known for pizza and Charlie Brown. Peanuts. <laughs> no, actually, I was looking up a little bit about this since you told me that we were going to be doing this story. Yes. And the pilot that they hired to patrol this area on this manhunt mm -hmm. was the Red Baron. That's cool. Yeah, I thought so too. The first break in the case was on February 12th, 1932, when an Indian trapper, Pete Alexi, went through the Rat Pass with a message that several Indians had spotted strange snowshoe tracks east of the Prairie House. This house was a Hudson Bay Company fur trading post that was established in 1846 near Fort McPherson, Yukon. Getting back to the RCMP bringing a plane to help the team out, the pilot was looking hard for any signs of Johnson. After searching persistently up and down, finally a trace of Johnson's trail was found. Johnson had hoped to circle around and come up from behind to get food that he kept hidden, but he kept coming up into the old trail in front of the posse instead of behind him. Now that's quite a mistake, isn't it? Do you think he's starting to get lost? Yes. Well, that's where either the snow blindness is coming in that we talked about. Mm-hmm. Or the fact that he has been living alone for so long and his mindset is beginning to waver. I agree. Totally agree with that. It never occurred to me, but I do agree. Yeah. And I'm flabbergasted that he has been able to escape the law as long as he has. When he's out in the elements, I mean, we're talking about being extreme north, not just up in Canada, but extreme north in the Northwest Territories. That's almost near the North Pole. Well, folks, if you are trying to think how cold it was, add 100 times the cold on that because this is really frigid, dangerously freezing temperatures. Mm -hmm. Johnson had been on the run for 33 days. Now that's a lot. So he has been alone for a long time. He had escaped during a blizzard and several more blizzards went through the area, totally obliterating all signs of Johnson by the RCMP. I feel like certainly Johnson has to have some kind of tactical training of sorts. He wasn't in the military, was he? We don't know anything about who this man is. That's right. So he may very well have some military experience. Yeah, he's got to have some kind of tactical experience, especially with living out in, the, in those elements, for sure. Exactly. It's, not, it's almost like he was on the run from something. Mm-hmm. Temperatures were 30 to 40 degrees below zero while he was being pursued. So breaking trails with snowshoes in deep snow would have been excruciating. Being constantly on the run would cause a lot of sweat and dampness that would require clothes to be dried out. Being cold requires food for energy and heat, yet Johnson didn't shoot his rifle for fear of giving himself away. Instead, he resorted to setting snares. Johnson couldn't build a big fire because that would give him away. Everything worked against him, yet after 30 days he continued to elude capture. At some point, Johnson had stored a caribou that he had killed earlier in the year. Authorities eventually came across the caribou and watched this area to see if Johnson would return for food, but he never did. On February 9th, a blizzard tore through rat and barrier areas, 
where the hunt for Johnson continued. This blizzard swept through the entire Mackenzie Delta, grounding the plane and stopping the posse from pursuing Johnson at this point. Johnson, on his trek of 250 miles, chose to bolt across the ridges of the Richardson Mountains, which is an extension of the Rockies. Now, what do you think of that, Deb? He walked 250 miles in 30 days. Yes. And he was never spotted. That's incredible. This guy is catch me if you can. Exactly. Wow. That's why I wanted to do this story because uh, it is one of my favorite stories. It's it's like the bad guy is winning and, and in a way you're rooting for him. Yeah, I have never heard of this story before you told me about it. I'm surprised. We were never taught it in school. You know, you'd think that you would hear about the world's biggest manhunt in in some parts of our history. Absolutely. Now, interestingly enough that you say that, because when we were talking about H.H. Holmes, Mm -hmm. the book that you had read, The Devil in the White City. Yes. That's being taught in American schools. Is it really? Yeah, kids are reading that in their literature classes. Well, reading the book, it certainly gives you a lot of history, as we know, that came out of the story. But it talks a lot about building and and how it sinks into the ground if the ground isn't made up of certain materials. And yeah, wow, cool. I agree with you. I'm not. I'm surprised I never read this when. I, well, yeah, I was in high school there, so I'm surprised at some point, even when I was in high school, I never read about this. And you didn't either. No. It's not uncommon to see temperatures go to 100 degrees below zero. The local Indians and white trappers said Johnson would never go straight across the mountains, especially after being chased for 30 days. But they were wrong. Johnson indeed made it over the mountain. To this day, no one knows how he managed to successfully ascend the peak. I agree with that because what equipment did he have? Was he just with his snowshoes? Is that it? He's he's superhuman. He is. So now we've reached an area called the shootout. And unfortunately, we're going to find out that Johnson isn't too successful. Okay. On February 17th, 1932, the RCMP ran head on to Johnson while he was backtracking, stepping in his old tracks because he thought the police were behind him. He startled and quickly put on his snowshoes and ran to the bank of the river. I know. (laughs) Snowshoes! Snowshoes! (laughs) Not that funny. But it is. He <laughs> <laughs> shot him quickly, ran up his snowshoes, and ran to the river on the bank. Hey, boy. Newfoundland. <laughs> Beth, I didn't know you were so witty. <laughs> I am, actually. The girls at work often come hilarious. Because I have a very dry sense of humor like Dad. Me too. People, <laughs> you, you have to have a dry sense of humor to get people. And I definitely have that too. But wow. <laughs> he startled and quickly put on his snowshoes. Okay, I'll be real this time. He startled and quickly put on his snowshoes and ran to the bank of the river. One of the trackers grabbed his rifle and started shooting. 
Johnson ran off and then quickly turned around and hit one of the officers. The bullet went through the elbow, left knee, and then ripped through his chest. As luck would have it, he survived the ordeal. That's shocking. Thank goodness. I know. Shouts to surrender were yelled to Johnson, who was standing in the middle of the Eagle River. The posse then spread out and started to shoot. One of the bullets hit the ammunition in Johnson's pocket, causing it to explode. Johnson lost a large chunk out of his thigh. Another bullet struck his shoulder and then his side. Another shout to surrender filled the air and still Johnson continued to shoot at the authorities. The authorities then started firing at Johnson. Finally, Johnson was dead from a bullet to his spine. Wow. So he was pretty much in front of the firing squad. Yes. Wow. Johnson's body was taken to Lapeer House by dog sled, and the next day he was flown into Aklavik, where a full exam of his body took place before the burial in an ironmark grave. And there you have it, the Mad Trapper of Rat River. The ending's sad. It is. Poor guy. Okay. Mm, Not poor guy because he's obviously not a good human being, but his ending is, I don't think that it was necessary. That's sad. You're right. It's so many men, but I guess they're protecting their own lives. Oh, absolutely. You can't help but understand how everything occurred, but wow, the sequence of events here was very interesting. Okay. Before we continue, I wanted to take a look at this picture here of the Mad Trapper. Is that him? Is this is this after the shootout? <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, this is not funny, but he looks awfully happy there. You know who else? He kind of looks like, oh, what's his name? He's an actor. He played in 24. Well, I don't know about 24, but I think you mean the Canadian actor, Kiefer Sutherland? Yes! He's Canadian. Wow. Yeah, does he not look a little bit like... Well, he ha- I guess he does because I picked it out when you said you couldn't remember his name. Yeah, I was about to go look him up, but I had no idea he was Canadian. Oh, isn't he? He's Donald Sutherland's son. He certainly is. Okay, yeah. Anyway, the Mad Trapper looks awfully happy in this picture. He must have been tired of running. I can't imagine. 250 miles, 33 days, minus 100 degrees. Yeah, that's, that is something else. So, Deb, do you have a teachable moment from this story? What, are you ready to hang up? (laughs) No. I do have a teachable moment, and I always try to work one in based on what we're talking about, and I think it's important. As you can see with the RCMPs, you have to work as a team, and it takes a village for the most part. Don't you agree? Yes. It's like the dogs worked in a team, the RCMPs worked in a team, and it's important to get to the finish line that way. It really is. But that's all I got. Yeah, that's a good one. And that's a wrap. And that's a wrap. Okay, so let's talk about social media. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. We will be back next week. In the meantime, you can find us on dyingtobefound.com or social medias at Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Dying To Be Found. Thanks so much, and we will talk to you next week. Music